Jesus of Nazareth, teacher, preacher, healer, son of God and king of kings, has had a very, very bad week. After a very nice dinner with his friends, Jesus went out to Gethsemane to pray, after which he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. Judas identified Jesus to the police, who were sent to arrest him on trumped-up charges because he was a threat to the authority of those in power. Interestingly enough, during his arrest, good old middle-class fisherman-turned-disciple Peter sliced the ear clean off a cop with no consequences while our dark-skinned Nazarene lord from a place that was very much low class was taken away violently to an even more violent end. Privilege shrouds ill-doing while the innocent suffer. We confess that in many ways we share the guilt of Peter in this moment, in our own times, ourselves. From there, Jesus was taken to a trial before the Jewish governing authority, abandoned and denied by all his closest friends and followers, and was sent away to appear before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, Pilate clearly didn't want to kill Jesus. He seemed to think the whole thing ridiculous. And he spent most of his time with Jesus looking for a way to follow the rules, to keep the peace, but somehow still spare Jesus as well. Ultimately, of course, he couldn't. And he learned, I hope, a lesson that, we have to confess, we still haven't really learned that well today. Sometimes, when the choice is between committing a sin and keeping the peace, there's the righteous who break the peace, and the unrighteous who allow sin to continue in the name of an unjust peace. So once again, Jesus was taken away, denied by his friends and his people, set to carry his cross to Golgotha, where they strung him up, nailed him through the hands and feet, and left him to hang, suffering until his death. And as we read on Good Friday from John's Gospel, that death came ignominiously, begging for water to soothe the thirst that comes not from dry lips but from failing organs. Jesus was given vinegar and then abandoned. Sometime later, it came to be that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords had passed away unnoticed, so alone that no one even marked the time at which he had gone. At that, he was taken away and buried in a borrowed tomb behind a heavy stone. There had been morning, and now it was night, the first day. The next day was one 
of silence and despair and confusion as disciples, family, and friends came together to wonder what was going to happen next. Wasn't this man the Son of God? Wasn't he the Messiah come to raise the people up to growth and deliverance and freedom once again, to rule with strength and with power and with wisdom? How could such a divinely appointed leader, if such he truly was, fall to so ignoble an end? Were we wrong? These terrible, dark night of the soul doubts. We confess that even still, with this Easter thousands of years behind us, we still share these same doubts ourselves. We still find ourselves waiting in our hearts for that Easter dawn to break. We sit now with all of them, wondering that same age-old wonder. How could God let this happen? There was mourning, and there was doubt-filled evening. The second Today, the sun rises hopefully on the third day. This is a scripture reading from John 19, verses 40 through 42. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out, and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in, and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I want to tell you something. I know it's, it's Easter today, but the truth, my truth, is that there's really no point in the Christian year where I personally feel closer to Jesus than on Holy Saturday. Now, it's not about the, the waiting or the anxiety or the lack of surety, the cognitive dissonance of hope and belief wrestling with the harsh reality of that broken body that once housed our Messiah. No, I, I don't notice these things all that much, if I'm being honest. What I see, what I feel sitting by the graveside of Jesus Christ is an odd form of kinship. You see, the trumpets and the cheers, the crowds chanting Hosanna on Palm Sunday, the miracles, the healings, teaching crowds that gathered just to hear him drop pearls of divine wisdom, all that is an abstraction to me. And I understand what it means. And it provides me with a wealth of good information and wisdom and spiritual nourishment upon which I have based my life and my career. Don't, don't get me wrong about that. But well, I can understand much of that intellectually, I have a hard time connecting with it personally. And I don't know what it means to be, even for a fleeting moment in the sun, to be this great and beloved, fearless leader, respected rabbi, high school quarterback, most likely to succeed or even just most useful in a given moment. I don't know these experiences beyond what you might get by seeing it on television. But if you sat with us on Good Friday, you may remember me talking about just how, how utterly lonely the death of Christ really was. How, after hours of terrible suffering, asking for water, water to soothe his broken and dying organs, water he'd never be able to properly drink anyway, he simply hung his head and died. We talked about how in the book of John, this Jesus Christ, magnificent Savior and mighty Son of God, passed away so utterly and completely alone that no one even noticed that he had died until the soldiers came around later to break some legs and speed things up a little bit. Judas had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. The apostles had all fled. The community that had praised him on Sunday stood surrounding him, calling for his neck on Friday. He was nailed to a tree, hung out to die, and before the end, even his mother had gone home. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I find myself sitting at the graveside of a Savior who had experienced that, now that I find, honestly, a bit easier to understand. Because I know, I know what it's like to be unwanted, to be a freak, a geek, an outcast, alone. I know what it's like to be last picked for any given team, and for that matter, to be quickly shown the door of any team that I might be lucky enough to sneak onto in the first place. 
I know what it's like to have your friends betray you, your community reject you, and your enemies rise up around you and try to bury you. In that space, in Good Friday and Holy Saturday, that is a Christ that I know. And in that moment, I find myself encountering a Christ who knows me too. When we come to Easter Sunday, we often find ourselves waiting expectantly for that, that homecoming moment, the trumpet-sounding declaration of new life that is the resurrection. We want a do-over of Palm Sunday, done right this time. Now the King has well and truly come. The victory is at hand, victory over even the grave, victory over death itself. If we just believe, if we just believe, you know, in those, those times in my life where I found myself alone, outcast, and hated, I found my small measure of safety, a little bit of community, and my own real source of belonging in the church. It quickly became my refuge, you see. When bullies rose up to attack, when life moved to strike down, I could always slink back to church and find myself welcomed. Of course, I say this knowing full well that this experience in itself reveals my privilege. Safety in the arms of Great Mother Church hasn't exactly been easy to find for people anymore, to say the least. But, you know, I, I had just the right color of skin, just the right gender identity and presentation, and my sexuality was in line with the puritanical mores of those in power, so I landed myself a provisional seat at the table. Of course, even as a cishet white American male, I began to notice pretty quickly that this seat didn't come without preconditions. It wasn't long before I began to hear that, that hauntingly, terrifyingly common refrain, like, like an unnumbered hymn that we all keep singing even though we can't seem to find it in any hymnal. It's a pretty simple tune. You can't be a Christian and something else. The first verse of this erstwhile hymn was honestly a lot like a lot of uh, actual Christian music. It was catchy and not really all that objectionable. You can't be a Christian and worship golden idols like those folks did back in the Old Testament days. All right, okay, well, that makes sense, I guess. But as the, the, uh, the song went on, the verses started getting farther and farther away from anything that made sense to me. But instead of throwing out weird these and thous and oddly phrased couplets, they started to add instead to that growing list of disqualifications. You can't be a Christian and a murderer. It seems strict, but not so wrong, so maybe. Well, you can't be a Christian and a criminal. I guess, but what about the criminal who was crucified with Jesus? Well, you can't be a Christian and do drugs. Wait, hold on. What kinds of drugs? Does the medicine care? You can't be a Christian and hang out with the wrong crowd. Is God condemning us for making friends? You can't be a Christian and believe in evolution. You can't be a Christian and trust any science at all. You can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. You can't be a Christian and be gay or trans or bi. You can't be a Christian and be in any way different. And, and, and the list just goes on. Like some 
terrible passage from the message guest written by Martin Niemöller. But whatever the and of the week might be, whether it's sexuality, politics, science, or something else, the refrain underlying it was always exactly the same. You can't be a Christian and do anything but just believe. Believe without question, without complaint, and without challenge. And as we let this idea become a part of us, we began to turn it against ourselves, to demonize our own connection to reality, to make heresy of our critical thinking skills, to turn our own inherent curiosity into an enemy of the faith. We convinced ourselves that our faith was our prejudices, and that anyone who didn't share our prejudice, well, they didn't believe. And to find yourself in this place as someone who didn't really believe, well, that way condemnation lied. Those who didn't believe were sent away. Their questions treated as undermining the very fabric of our shared community. Those who didn't believe were treated in the same way that antibodies treat an invading disease. And with much the same level of compassion. Those who didn't believe were often told that their faith and their curiosity are incompatible, that their quest for answers that burns bright in their heart is really just the flames of hell nipping at their proverbial heels, that that word, that terrible word, why, was the worst word you could ask in church bar none. But I always wondered, why it would be that God would create in so many of us hearts that wanted to know more, to approach both faith and the world with a desire to take everything apart to know it better, to explore rather than simply just accept. Why? Why would God inspire us to always want to know ourselves better, to know each other better, to know creation better, and then deem that desire to know and be known as an enemy of true and perfect faith? tell you, I wondered. I wondered. But then I looked. And I looked and I saw Mary. Mary the disciple. Mary Magdalene, who so many wrongly called a whore, first to arrive at the tomb on Easter morning. Did you see that she came when it was still dark out? Maybe it's just because I have kids and therefore haven't gotten more than a few hours of sleep in a row since 2010. But I can't imagine the dedication it takes to get up before dawn, that early, just to go visit a gravesite, especially in a time before alarm clocks existed. And in the darkness, before that Easter dawn, she sees it. The stone already rolled away. And just like that, Jesus' resurrection goes unwitnessed too, much the same as his death a few days earlier. The Lord has passed back into the world the same way as he left it, quietly and while nobody was looking. So Mary sees what has already happened. And she goes to get help. She goes to get help not because she believes in the resurrection and is excited, not because she believed that the Savior had walked out of the grave while whistling a jaunty tune, but because she saw the stone rolled away and assumed, quite logically, that someone had broken in and stolen the body. Mary here is firmly grounded in reality. 
She's not looking for what she wants to see and trying to interpret or shape reality to reflect it. She's taking reality as it's been given to her and trying to work with it in a holy and righteous way. Would that we all could grasp that kind of strength of spirit. So she goes out and she collects the first few apostles that she can find and brings them out. She grabs Simon Peter, the rock on which Christ would build his church. And incidentally, one of the best puns in the entire book, but that, that's a story for another time. And along with a no doubt equally faithful disciple who goes unnamed, they make a beeline for the tomb. You know, and by the way, while it's not really central to the point I'm making at the moment, I do want to invite you to take a sec and look at what these disciples did not do when one of their female companions came bursting in the door with some information that they'd probably rather not hear. No one suggests that she might have gotten the wrong tune, or misunderstood how doors work, or something equally patronizing. No one suggests that she might have somehow overlooked the body because her ovaries blinded her silly girl brain. No, the disciples simply take her word for it and head for the tomb. Would that we could all listen like that, guys. Anyway, so they get there, and the guy-siples, if you will, find Jesus' grave clothes neatly folded and laid on the stone slab with nary a body to be found. They all saw and all believed, it says. There's no indication what they believed, of course. No indication that they had even the slightest inkling that Jesus had just set a record for respawn time that would stand unchallenged even until today. But they believed that this was something more than a case of corpse theft. They believed that it was important. And in the strength of that belief, in the surety of their faith in Jesus' great and powerful doing of, I don't know, something... They did what many of us all too often do when we sense that God is at work on the scene. They dusted off their hands and they went straight home. You can almost imagine Mary just standing there in confusion and frustration, right? I mean, she came here with a real, practical, logical concern that she needed some help dealing with. And these guys, they showed up saw Jesus' burial clothes neatly folded, declared that a miracle had happened, and just left her there, with the problem of the missing Jesus still very much unsolved. So Mary, with little option left to her, decides to head into the tomb and try to figure things out for herself. And if I'm being honest, what she sees there does not reflect well on St. Peter and the guys, because the first thing she notices is two actual angels just hanging out there in the tomb. I mean, how exactly did the guys miss that one? By the way, if you're feeling generous towards the recently departed apostolic gentleman and think that a couple of nondescript men in white pajamas might be an easy thing to miss, please let me remind you that in the, the grand Christian tradition, angels are actually giant swirling balls of madness covered in an objectively ridiculous number of unblinking eyes, shrouded in a half dozen wings, and usually completely on fire. That's what they managed to miss. Of course, being a, a logical person, Mary just starts asking the one thing that any reasoning person worth their salt would actually ask in that situation. Okay, 
Where did Jesus go? Did you take him? Can you help me find him? And it's in this moment, this moment here, to a woman who is asking questions and trying to make logical sense of the world with which she has been presented, to a woman who, unlike the other disciples, did not immediately jump to a place of blind and unproductive belief. It is to her that the risen Lord Jesus Christ first appears. Now, if you were to go into any random American church and ask whichever folks you might find there whether Christ prefers us to display pure and unquestioning faith in God, or a bloody-minded curiosity that has us constantly question and challenge our own beliefs, our hopes, and even our church leaders, what do you think those well-meaning church folk might say? Look, I, I hate to admit it, but a lot of us church folk would be pretty quick to assume that God prefers or even rewards those who believe in God without question, who accept that message of resurrection, salvation, and new life right at face value, unblinkingly joining the chorus and singing praises to the Almighty. But the opening move here, the opening move of the risen Christ, isn't to appear with messages of reassurance to those faithful few who believed and did not question, but to show himself to that one woman who came to the tomb, absent of power and privilege, but full of doubt and questions. The one person who tried to figure out what actually happened. The one person who tried to understand not just what had happened to Christ, but where Christ had gone and where indeed he might be going. Mary Magdalene was blessed to be a Christian and someone with a questioning heart. And Christ saw that she was both of these things, that Mary embraced her andness. And he did more than just appear to her. He made her the carrier, the first carrier of that good news of great joy, that where there had been death, there was now life, and Christ had indeed come again. When I, when I think of the good news of the resurrection, the great message of Easter, this is how I have always understood it. You see, Christ knew that feeling, that graveside loneliness of the freaks and the geeks and the losers and the outcasts and all those that society has said do not belong. And when Christ came again, when he rose from the dead, he chose not to appear first to those who would leap directly to belief because he knew that simply believing isn't enough. He knew that when you believe without questioning, when you have faith without reason, it inevitably turns into isolation, othering, despair, and death. After all, he should know. The Shammai Pharisees did exactly that to him just last week. So when the day of the resurrection came, Christ gave the good news to someone who was willing to question and who wasn't quick to jump to belief as the sole viable answer. Christ wanted someone who would think it through, who would search for the connection between the dark reality of the life with which we are presented and the love that is God whom we are called to serve. Christ entrusted the message of the resurrection to the one person 
who saw an empty tomb and didn't immediately think about how it confirmed their existing beliefs, but thought about what might have to come next as a result. My friends, this unfinished community, it's a brand new idea. It's a, it's a small community of, of questioning folks, looking and listening for God's message of love and acceptance in the midst of a world full of other folks who claim that God is anything but that. Look, I wish, <laughs> I wish I could speak to you today and tell you that all churches everywhere will henceforth preach the gospel of the resurrected Christ who loves all, welcomes all, and treasures you for your true authentic self. I, I wish I could speak to you today and tell you that all Christians everywhere have seen the glory of the risen Christ and come to know that all people are beloved in the sight of the Lord, that everyone truly knows that the one great enemy of God in this world is the inexplicable belief that some people are less than others. I wish I could say that. The truth is that othering is a hell of a drug, and communities, both secular and sacred, the world over, have long built that into the fabric of their very identity. But for our new community, for this place, small though it may be, I can tell you this, that here, in this place, we know that the gospel of the risen Christ is this. You can be Christian and broken. You can be Christian and healed. You can be Christian and some Frankensteinian stitched together mess of broken and healed bits held together with creativity and prayers. You can be Christian and be your authentic self. You can be Christian and still be trying to figure out what your authentic self even is. You can be Christian and make bad decisions. You can be a Christian and make good decisions. You can be a Christian and make decisions entirely at random, having no idea if you're doing the right thing or not. And, 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 and. You can be Christian and you can be yourself. Full stop. Because when you let go, of the temptation to blind and meaningless belief and start being your authentic self in the light of God's mercy and grace, you'll find yourself charged to bring the message of the resurrected Christ out into the world, the message that there is space at the table for everyone, that never again shall there be no more room at the inn, that the lost sheep will always be found, that those who hunger for righteousness will be filled, that the cross has fallen down, the stone has rolled away, and behind all of it, all of it, is a God who wants that none should perish, but that all shall drink living water, and share in the gift of eternal life. So let's go be like Mary and go tell people that we have seen the Lord. He's risen indeed. Well, thank you everybody for listening again to this week's scripture and sermon. Uh, if you're new to the unfinished community here, I want to invite you to become part of our community. 
Uh, if you're not familiar, what we do here is we are an online-only church community. So most of our interactions, most of our fellowship, actually most of our community in general, happens through what's called a Discord server, which is a special place online where we're constantly talking with each other, sharing information, preparing worship services, and just generally having good fellowship and conversation. You can find all the details about this on our website, and I really want to encourage you to join us in this Discord server. It'd be wonderful to have you. We have a number of events during the week that you're welcome to join us in as well. Uh, on Thursdays via our Facebook page, you can catch uh, me doing our Psalms from the Trails series. This is where I go out into the wilderness around Kobe on some of the ancient hiking trails or up in the mountains and record a little meditation on one of the Psalms. We also have our regular weekly check-in where we get together with people in the community and just hang out and spend a little time online, voice chatting, video chatting on our Discord server. It's a great chance to get to know some people and see some faces, especially in a time where we're not seeing a whole lot of faces. So you're welcome to join us for that as well. That is Saturday nights at 10.30 p.m. Japan time or 9.30 a.m. on Saturday, Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. Make some time for that one. It's a lot of fun. In the meantime... I just want to let you know that no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are, no matter when you are, no matter how, how or what life is throwing at you, that I'm thinking about you, that I'm praying for you, and that God is with you. Take care.